You're gonna think fourth dimension. I got my goals. I wanna be green, not red. I'm gonna light my paper up with green and get my next big bonus. But you know, hey, everyone doesn't get their bonus if Ford as a company isn't achieving the best that we can, so. Pashi presents The Means of Production, a podcast about what it really takes to build, maintain, and scale the processes that produce the physical products that power our world. Every episode, we ask a manufacturing expert to walk us through the nuts and bolts of how they do their job. We explore how and why they got into manufacturing, dive deep into the hardest problems they've solved on production lines, and discuss their thoughts on what's broken in manufacturing today and how those things can be fixed. This podcast is hosted by me, Siddhit Sangvi, Pashi's US manufacturing operations lead and former assembly engineer at Ford Motor Company. If you are a part of the manufacturing world and you're interested in being a guest on the means of production, get in touch with me at siddhith at pashi.com, which is S-I-D-D-H-I-T at P-A-S-H-I dot com. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 13 of The Means of Production. With us today is Adam Kowalski, Data Scientist with the Advanced Connected Vehicles Group at Ford Motor Company. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Sin. Happy to be here. And before Adam and I have this conversation, he's going to read, read out a quick disclaimer. I work at Ford Motor Company, but this is my own opinion and is not the opinion of Ford Motor Company, and I am not a spokesperson for Ford Motor Company, official or otherwise. Perfect, Adam. Thank you so much. So firstly, Adam, um, it's great to connect back with you um, after a while. Uh, it's good to hear your voice and uh, just I want to know what's going on. How are you? How is, uh, how is you know work from home and uh, just everything? Just uh, tell us how you are. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you miss me just talking directly across from you uh, in, in, the, in our open office uh, <laughs> like we used to have, you know. I'm doing pretty good, uh, pretty busy, working for the analytics team, uh, the, the well, connected vehicle team. And, and uh, it's probably been about a year since I've been on with the team and uh, big transition from the previous work that I used to do, obviously, it was all manufacturing and finally, you know, kind of seeing over the wall and getting to do something a little different. Yeah, absolutely. I, I that move was really good, and and I'm very happy that that you're happy over there. Can you? Like, I, I guess this is a little off topic, but can you? Let's do the first question in which you tell us how you got to this role. But before you do that, can you speak a little bit about uh, what you do in this group, and then you can go as far back as you want to explain to us how you got into manufacturing in the first place and, and then eventually this role. Yeah. So we'll go through back the time and space of Ford Motor Company and my <laughs> sort of progression of how we got there because it is it is quite the transition um, and it, it, it's definitely a, a story in itself. But as for what my day-to-day -day operations are, I uh, work on a team that is primarily uh, research-oriented, uh, which is a, a deviation from kind of my previous work. Um, I have limited experience with research teams. My project, on the other hand, uh, just happens to be a little bit more tactile in the sense that you can touch it, is that uh, we're working on cloud-enhanced distance empty, and the marketing name for that in Ford is Intelligent Range, which has been plastered up on the side of the building 
for the new F-150 launch. So everyone's uh, very nervous, but very excited to, you know, get that feature out and go. And what that feature is, is essentially it's going to calculate your range left in the electric powertrain based on your driving habits, your weather, the traffic, um, everything sort of surrounding the vehicle that environmentally, you know, in the past, we might have just had to deal with, you know, the sort of the nuts and bolts engineering side of it. Now we have all these, you know, APIs and things we can kind of crunch into and, and really get, you know, smart about how we're developing range. So um, that's mainly what I work on now. The uh, uh, story of how I got there is, a, is more complicated. I originally uh, started at Ford as an FCG which is the uh, Ford College Graduate Program, which is a sort of more of a rotational program for experience rather than, you know, some people, you know, are looking for like a leadership program. So not to be confused, but that got me into manufacturing originally. And from there, I was doing different, different types of things, mainly uh, focused around industrial engineering. Uh, so the, the thing is, is that uh, I always knew I kind of had some interest in analytics. There were some projects from my undergrad that were, you know, pretty, you know, it was pretty insightful to see that, you know, that that was something I, I had some aptitude for and that I felt really comfortable kind of talking about. So I really wanted to get doing more of that kind of stuff. So that led me to test engineering, which is, um, is, is a department inside of uh, Ford Manufacturing that has to do with sort of the process of acceptance for quality within the plants and, and kind of going through procedural tests in order to figure out if a product is okay to go and there are variations on those tests but see that's sort of building towards that idea of like okay this is analytics you know it's it's all about doing your your statistical quality control and things like that so that job kind of got me my foot starting to go into the door and then what happened was is that we, we were going through uh, sort of some churn in the powertrain uh, manufacturing engineering department as far as personnel and the industrial engineering department, which my FCG rotations were based out of, was looking to sort of to close down their headcount. And they knew, because I'm pretty vocal about and honest about what I'm looking to do, they ended up being able to find me a role within the GDIA Ford. And I found a role that was actually exactly what I, you know, had said on paper. I, I remember telling my mentor, I said, if only there was a role that was like a liaison between data and the manufacturing floor. And that's exactly kind of what the role life was brought into was. And that was uh, in data operations, which is in, in its origins, more of what we call data steward, which is has to do with uh, sort of being a curator for the data rather than more so than like a very technical, you know, data scientist or data engineering. Little did we know, and as said, you would know because you've I fell into the same uh, uh, trap, <laughs> is that it ended up being a lot more data engineering than you ever imagined. And it was actually really interesting. And, and that's kind of what has, you know, happened in the last almost three years now, which is crazy to me to think. And, and it's crazy to, to think that, I've actually been a data practitioner at Ford for the same amount, if not longer amount than in, I was in manufacturing. So I'm actually half and half. Now, half of my time or two, three, actually, I guess two thirds of my time in GDIA was with manufacturing. But I, you know, like I said, I, I felt like every, you know, 
month or so that I was going the direction of data engineering, I started walking away from manufacturing and less it was that that SME experience seemed less important. So that's sort of a roundabout way. And I'm sure we'll come back to parts of this in the future, because I feel like it's it's sort of defined a lot of my experiences so far. No, that is a, that's a really good way of, of putting your experience to how you got there. And I guess for the audiences, what, what I want to emphasize here is that this this will kind of give you a picture of how fast Ford moved as a, a giant company, very giant legacy company, as they call it, in, in such a cutting edge area. And Adam and myself and some other pioneers who actually set this, you know, group up, they moved really fast trying to capture how how data could be utilized in a way that would you know ready them for the future and i'm very glad that i and adam both got to experience it and adam is still in the same group albeit in a more as he said research capacity and this featured the intelligent range i mean everybody knows it now everyone watched the f-150 lightning i think it was a f like a fantastic uh a thing to happen to ford uh, to stake the f-150 brand on such on something so drastically different than than you know a, a gas engine yeah. uh, car, and I'm, I'm happy, Adam, that you get to work on such an important feature. And yeah, so yeah. It, it it almost takes me back a little bit to manufacturing in that sense that when I used to work on the plant floor, you had that nice feeling that was that thing that you made or whatever that process you did, or maybe it was just improving the process. Whatever you did, it ended up going to a customer's hands. And then when you talk to that customer, whenever you talk to that customer and you actually, you can really explain to them what you were talking about. You know, like we used to, I used to work on transmissions. You know, it's very easy to explain to someone, uh, at least someone who has, you know, some, uh, or, or, you know, cares a lot about cars. It's easy to explain to them what you worked on and, and all the little nuances of it. And, you know, it's not like you're explaining trade secrets or anything like that it's more just like it's taking pride in the thing that you sold i had that as an intern at mac and i i know it transitions to here when you're working on the data sort of in the back kind of like the troll in the cave uh you don't really get that exposure so it's not quite as fun and your customers internal so you don't they know like they're like you better be doing your job so it's nice to have intelligent <laughs> range which is you know something that you can actually um again talk like i, I get to talk to my dad about it he's you know he's really excited. He he's he's uh, looking to buy a Maki here in the next uh, few months, so it, it'll be really fun. I told him that if he gets it, uh, I'm going to be down there a lot because I'm going to need it to do some more testing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's great for your dad. I I myself am a, I guess uh, of all the vehicles that Ford has come up with, uh, it's, I like the Mustang Maki also, the most. And uh, you're right. You you are in a in quite a customer facing product now because that is the intelligent range is what everyone even if they don't have range anxiety they are going to be really focused on how accurate this feature is while they are driving the first electric pickup truck which has always given more importance to the torque and the power and the convenience than really you know the the, the range because we never had to worry about it and and now this is something that people will pay a lot of attention to and it's like you said you know there's there'll be a lot of scrutiny and there'll be a lot of testing to do to do on on the range but uh, this this really rounds up 
the state of manufacturing today, uh, folks in the audience, like the from from test engineering, which gives you a lot of data from these industrial within the plant processes into statistical process control and statistical quality control. And then for you who are who are just, you know, coming out of college or, or thinking of manufacturing, these are the kind of paths that you can take what, what Adam has just done, right? So he went from industrial engineering to test engineering to using that knowledge of analyzing complex large amounts of data directly into the big data world with the analytics group and then going into more research slash customer oriented areas because by this time you have some subject matter knowledge about the automotive production that you can contribute to so many diverse areas like you know devising the intelligent range for a pickup truck in the electric version so that's a great introduction adam thank you for that I'd like to take us into like our question, which is if, you know, what was the most technical challenge, uh, like hard challenge you had to face in your career? It could, could be any point in your career. Uh, and how did you face it? It could be one incident. It could be a month. It could be just a tough time. So just walk us through how, how you handle it. I think there are many out there and I'm, and I'm going to focus a little bit on, I think on manufacturing, um, one of the things that, that, that really screams out to me is, as far as like hard technical challenges was always for me as a test engineer was getting at the, you know, sort of when we're, what the, so our group, our, my group was uh, focused on launch, right? So we were bringing equipment in, we want to get it ready to go so that we're, we're able to scale up. And one of the to me, the hardest technical challenges is getting that equipment okay to go, right? So to get it to so it's that it's sort of sold equipment that it's <laughs> the plant's problem in a, in a sense. But you know, I had that challenge a lot with the uh, the launch of the one of the tra- the the ten speed transmissions in Livonia, and it was it was all surrounded around getting this equipment settled and and getting everything ready to go. And, and I had a very short period of time. I came into this program again from the rotation program. I came in in the last six months of, of a phase launch of, of, ten, of the 10 speed. And uh, we had about eight of what we called these uh, test uh, calibration test stands. So we had eight test stands and eight test stands were all the same, but they were fed by all this uh, gantries and equipment across and they do a very slow process. That's why we had to have eight of them. And they do a very precise process. They have, you know, lots of transducers that have uh, really high resolution. So you got to, you know, make sure that they're all calibrated. You have uh, lots of meters and flow and everything gets involved in the, in the process. And how we test everything is sort of a, a, a research project of its own. And there are people at Ford who, who really understand that process and, and are, are sort of like global experts on, on hydraulic flow and everything. So you, you kind of follow their guidelines, but at the end of the day, you got to get the, the machine to produce a product that is consistent. And that's the whole idea of these. They're, they're essentially calibrating. So you're, you're taking a product that isn't consistent and making it so. But it's really important that your test stands don't produce its own variation, right? So my challenge was getting those test equipment uh, up and running and ready to go for the launch, but at the same time, needing to get that equipment okay to go as far as volume and and, and uh, making sure that they're running on time and that all of them, not not one of eight or all that all eight were there, 
and uh, I can tell you that it was a very uh, a dramatic launch. There were lots of things happening, uh, equipment that didn't work quite the way. We had to, you know, take whole, like whole pieces of equipment out that, that that basically, you know, slowed the entire line down. So everyone's looking at you. You have your morning meeting every day, and everyone's like, "What do you got today?" And you have to say, "Same as yesterday." It's never the most exciting conversation, but that is the reality. And you know, one of the things I've I've, I've found is you know being honest about where you're red and and where you need help is is one of the first things you got to get across to people because without it you're you're just going to constantly fail and and they'll never know why so that was that was a sort of my biggest technical challenge today was sort of getting those um test stands in alignment and if you want to you know go further into that we can thanks uh thanks adam yeah i i just have a few uh things that i want to unpack uh for myself because i don't understand it at you know as well i wasn't focused on that area and uh by by the way we have the only thing i know about test stands is what i'm going to say to the audience is that we we have like eight test stands which is where this transmission was getting tested because they had to have eight servers because their testing time was so much higher than what the the regular stations used to do. The regular stations used to be at a 20 second cycle time, whereas the test stands were, were a lot more. So they needed eight of them just to get the flow and the traffic and the JPH uh, at the same speed at the packout where it's also you know supposed to be coming out at 20 seconds. Having said that, you know just because I used to handle the, the bottlenecks and the cycle time and stuff, Adam, High level, what does a test stand do exactly? So, so um, there are many variations of test stands, right? In fact, um, the, the like you had mentioned, there is like for, so. So, for my test stands, there there was uh, there's like the final test, which is the whole transmission put together, sort of a hydraulic flow test, and you're and you're you're basically looking at shift shifting and making sure that it shifts on time, and you do a bunch of statistical techniques splining and things like that to to um find the uh optimal shift quality and make sure it's it's all within uh spec right there are other test stands before us that are testing sort of for if there's blockages if there is leaks right helium leak test is one of the things that we'll look into but these test stands are kind of special because they're not actually technically true test stands they actually are a value add process. This is something that actually creates value for the end customer in a sense that it's not a nut and bolt, but it is a calibration. And, and what these test ends would do was, was take a component of the transmission, the um, uh, main control, and actually take all the, the variation. Um, these main controls have solenoids, they have different springs, they have different uh, filters and they have different suppliers for all those things. And obviously that creates a lot of variability. And if you have a bad main control you have essentially what in the body is a, a, a bad like brain it's it's sort of the control center and if your brain is not transmitting on its neurons quite the way it should your your body's not going to function great and that's actually what this calibration is supposed to do is it's, it's basically pre-programming um, offsets to essentially allow for better shift quality uh, down the road so these these offsets are the value add that we're we're putting in and um, that that's the end goal is basically is to make sure that no test stand is sort of so if you have a test stand that, or sorry we'll call we'll call it a calibration stand that is wrongly set 
your whole formula is going to be off down the road. And what ends up happening, and this is one of those challenges that you kind of have, is if I change a setting, I may not find out about that being a problem in the plant, which is your greatest nightmare. Uh, you don't want to find out that it comes out in warranty, you know, six months after you, you know, you're, you've sold that or, or sent that transmission out of the stand. So, um, and, but that's kind of where it comes from. We, we end up getting a lot of these back from either warranty claims are very common, do self-rejecting the plant all the time, and we can fix all those things for the most part. But generally speaking, you know, it's, it's this, these are things that, that end up facing the customer. So that's why it's, you know, it gets, it does get a lot of spectators as far as the importance that makes a lot of sense and and uh, thank you for that explanation you know i i have never seen the quote-unquote test stand or you know more accurately the calibration stand in that light that that makes uh, like a lot of sense and i learned something new today so let's let's unpack that what, what that what you're saying is that Although it is not contributing uh, contributing in terms of a physical component, what it is doing, it is making sure that it's calibrated properly for use. And if it's not done properly, it can be a problem, which is pretty much what you can say for any other component. So, so that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, I did not know all that about test engineering. So, so, so there is this is a good overview of how transmissions are calibrated and tested. So, thanks, uh, thanks for that, Adam. That item I mentioned before about that idea of what I what I used to call like the black ether space, right? The 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 no the no zone of I produced something, I, I changed a knob on my stand and did it produce a warranty problem. That was an ether space. We are slowly making that not an ether space with analytics. That is sort of where analytics has increased uh, in in my own personal experience. I know of, of, of a couple of use cases now recently being in GDIA where the idea is, is that you can look at things that we've changed or sort of look at root cause and they're using uh, deep learning to sort of analyze at, at a much lower level than what we are able to do on the plant floor sometimes because they're looking at big data, they're looking at it off the plant floor, we're not creating rejects and they're able to find you know sort of patterns that are creating these warranty uh, rejects. So that's that's a, that's a space where they're starting to deep dive and, and really you know kind of get somewhere with. So I, I, I'm looking forward to sort of the advancement of that. That does sound very exciting, and and for the audiences, uh, this this is happening because there are so many you know tests that are done on that test stand, and so many like millions of data points that are created possibly every every day, uh, if not if not low you know if not uh, every hour, and for all of these vehicles and engines and transmissions and whatnot, and the variability is so extremely high that at some point you have to surrender this to some kind of AI kind of deep learning or machine learning method to help you understand what particular factor made something go off or, or just ruined something. At that point, it just becomes that much variability and that much data that, that this has to be done. So I think that's what uh, you meant, Adam, by coming out of the ether space and, and being a little more concrete with it, I guess. Exactly. All right. So, Adam, what has been your greatest non-technical challenge? And again, it can be at any point in your career and any type of challenge. Uh, just walk us through. 
Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges that I've encountered is sort of dealing with the offsets, right? And when I mean not by offsets are the sort of end goal, how do we make money as a company versus how what kind of company do we want to be? And, and to be more concrete about it, it's, it's all about how much product, what, what's to put into manufacturing terms, how much product do I want to put out versus the quality of that product? You know, the example I gave about my very technical issue had to do a lot with getting a product out that was in good quality. And and a lot of that holdup was making sure that we met the spec and sometimes exceeded it because we knew that, you know, if we didn't, then there might be problems later down the road. And that's not something we want to leave. But at the same time, there's going to be management that really wants you just to be done. Uh, they want to, they want to, they, they have boxes that they need to check and if you're not checking them, then, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a pressure point. Right. So, and those are the kinds of things like, you know, the, the, these aren't exclusive to manufacturing. This happens um, everywhere. The, when in, in the data world, this is the equivalent of what, what we call sort of unstructured and un, like raw data, which we uh, tend to land and sometimes it has a structure, sometimes a database, but sometimes these databases, even though they have structure, are sort of se- like seemingly meaningless unless you build sort of a good product out of it, cleaning it, making sure that all the, the columns and all the data set of the rows are are in compliance and that they follow some standardization and it's not filled with empty data points and and things like that so that people one day might actually be able to use it right and that's something we ran into we ran into how much we landed to uh we wanted to land or sort of copy and and bring a lot of data into our what it what is our our data cloud but we're not exactly bringing all the data that is high quality so we we do have to measure that and make sure that we're delivering high quality and a large volumes of high quality data when we can right right and and i guess what you're what you're referring to is are we getting this done just to get over with it or are we doing a good job of whatever we are doing and sometimes yeah. it, it may seem like it's it's uh, going late and it's going over something else but if you are doing it like early or on time, but it wasn't, it was just not correct, then it's just going to come and bite you later and that's going to be worse. So th- that does require a lot of foresight. It does require a lot of patience and, and just being able to ignore pressure, which is hard to do, um, especially, you know, in a large company where your voice can get lost. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 really a, a good and unique answer that you gave. Uh, I'm sure many people face it, but but it's glad that you're um, giving this as an example. And like you said, it happens in almost every company, uh, which is, am I doing this just to finish it off and not, you know, thinking about what can come back to bite me? So that's fantastic. So thank you for that answer, Adam. Yeah. You're going to think fourth dimensionally. You're going to think in time, not just right. uh, what's in front of me. Um, you know, you got to think about what's going to happen to the person. And that, and, and what you, your phrasing is exactly right. Because it's this is a problem that you have with any large company. I'm, I'm, I have no doubt it happens in a small company, but it's probably easier to confront is the concept of like, I, I got my goals and these are my goals and I want to be green not yellow, not red at all my goals, right? And sometimes we'll set goals that are so, you know, 
obscure that they could be green no matter what you you know way any way you phrase it it'll be green so they're sort of unachievable and then on the other hand they'll they'll be maybe so easy or they they didn't actually challenge yourself enough that you um really aren't showing any progress um so that's one thing like you said like it's it's the idea of like i'm gonna light my paper up with green so that i can you know say you know, I can get my next big bonus, but you know, hey, you know, everyone doesn't get their bonus uh, if you know Ford as a company isn't achieving the best that we can. So, absolutely, absolutely right, and I do see how it can get uh, very nebulous in the data world because it's not like they can put the data in a truck, come to your dock, and start yelling. I mean, it's it's unusable and you know they might tell you hey this is not something i can use but but the effect is the same it's it's still wasting time and it's wasting other people's uh, resources if the data is like unusable and again this this would be teething troubles for any company that is now realizing how important data is and getting into big data and trying to make sense of their operations in terms of analytics and data that is not catered or not refined or, or not uh, finessed in some way and is unusable will do the same thing, come back and bite you with wrong conclusions. So absolutely um, right, Adam. So Adam, you did mention some of the problems that you've seen with manufacturing or with large companies in general, but if you had a magic wand to wave off something, it could be more than one thing within within reason, what would it be and why? In This could be in your job, it could be in your work, it could be in the industry, it could be just something that you have seen throughout your career and you wish you could just wave off with the magic wand if that was possible. Um, I think the easiest thing, uh, and, and well, disregarding your statement on is it possible, uh, if people could lie or exaggerate, that would be a, a great start. Um, you know, Maybe enforcing that at a, at, at, in a in a theoretical level uh, would be really good uh, because it's it's like I, I I wish there was more emphasis on just honest performance, right? I I, yeah. I hate the sort of gunning attitude and the sort of I got to just make sure you know I'm okay and 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 that's a department thing, that's a team thing, and it's also a personnel thing, right? It 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 can be at any level, you know. It's hey, GDIA is gonna be looking good compared to uh, this other group, or hey, uh, my team is outperforming this uh, process team on uh, you know things like that, so. And the question is, is like, are you actually outperforming? Because if you are, I'd love to see, you know, the sort of the number. So I guess it's 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 sort of that idea of like, you know, enforcing honesty at a, at a certain level. Um, I know that's kind of probably difficult to sort of concrete, but, you know, I do have a magic wand and I want to do some magic stuff. So <laughs> no, that is that is, again, a very unique answer. I, I think you touched upon a great point. How do you how do you differentiate between like two organs of, of a body or, or, you know, mom, your score is higher than dad's. Like, what are you doing or something, right? It's it's hard to, it's hard to just, you know, have that kind of yeah. uh, comparison. And, and I don't want to get it come across as I don't think competition is good because I completely disagree with that statement. I think competition is great. I just think competition is much better if there's like ground rules in a game that everyone follows, right? I don't want people cheating their way through a thing. And to me, 
you know, like I talked about before, setting goals that are either unachievable, low ball, are just, you know, is essentially cheating the system. And, and, and this is like that whole concept of, you know, under promise and uh, over deliver or vice versa, right? You know, you want, we, we just, just, just be upfront about what you can do. And I want you to be upfront about what you're not good at, because I want to, you know, backfill that I want to find their personnel, I want to find the product, I want to find the software that really helps with that, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, uh, that's a great answer. And Again, in a very large company, it's highly likely that there are two groups whose work is overlapping and then they, they do come in some sort of competition. So that's absolutely true. And if you do want to see it as a competition, then at least have some ground rules. But otherwise, you're you're working for the same company, right? So healthy competition is good if, you know, it doesn't matter if one of you is is ahead. Uh, ultimately, the one who's behind will, like you said, you need to see what they're bad at and fix it. Or all of you are going to collectively suffer anyway because um, it's the same I ship. Have, I have another one for, with that. Kind of, yeah, yeah. You, you've kind of jogged my mind now. Um, actually, something recently I've worked worked through. Uh, I was a part of a workshop with um, sort of an IT perspective on on a rotation program, and and that's something that we talked about. And it's sort of that idea. I think that it would be nice if, and if I wave my magic wand, I would enforce some sort of uh, rotation program that emphasized movement, right? Um, that allowed people from manufacturing and and product development, uh, research and finance and marketing and all over the place, as long as they have the skill sets that are acceptable within the jobs, I would love to see them moving quicker and easier because the more time you spend in someone else's shoes, the easier it is to become and understand, right? It was easy in manufacturing to say, uh, hey, why is PD giving us these ridiculous specs? Well, that's because most of us have never you know, built a spec. Uh, it is easy to be a data scientist that says, hey, this data is, is, is not good, but in speaking of someone who's been on both sides, there may be a reason why it's not good. And then on the other hand, you might complain, those people might complain about, hey, my IT is really slow, but guess what? When you become IT, you start to understand why it's really slow. So I would love to see more rotation. I'd love to see more uh, skill cross pollinization. I'm a big fan of sort of discipline uh, diversity as in, 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 as, as an addition to any other diversity in your workforce. I, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's a very important attribute. That's that's a great second answer. I I, I really like it, Adam. And especially, uh, I'm I'm guilty of of saying uh, I I was guilty of saying that you know why why is PD behaving this way? And and this and and yes, I I do thank the the way I came into Ford Motor Company, coming into manufacturing first. And I, I do believe that if I had not been in manufacturing, I I would have said, oh, you know, our, why does our product why does our manufacturing quality is why is it not the best it's not the best because you know we haven't all collectively seen what their problems are gone to the floor and seen where are they really struggling at and try to help so yeah i i absolutely think that is necessary the fcg program is is one of the ways to do it which is uh, you know reminder for the audience is just a rotation program basically but this should be across like all stages all employee types and even the senior employee should be able to rotate uh, you know more freely like uh, you were saying discipline diversity yeah. and uh, be able to contribute with fresh ideas and fresh outlooks 
that was actually a huge part of it um was 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 it wasn't we didn't want a program that you know, essentially the workshop when i say we didn't want a program that was just for either new employees or people coming off maybe an MBA program. They wanted something that was for everybody and at any point in time in their career, because there comes times when it, it makes sense to make a pivot. And it also, you know, does a lot to tell you about your workforce. It, it, it sort of broadens perspectives. So it, it, to me, it's, it's, it, like I said, and when you, when you, and that's one of the things I would, you know, to anybody looking at rotation programs is, is, is to make sure that that rotation program satisfies your uh, sort of wants and needs as far as, um, you know, the broadness, is it, um, is it diversity in different types of work? Um, is it different disciplines altogether? For example, electrical versus mechanical engineering and things, things of that nature. Um, so those are always things to keep an eye out for as we go, you know, as we go into this sort of new way of working, which is going to be post COVID, um, people have sort of opened their eyes to sort of more progressive work systems. And one of the things, you know, that, 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 that it seems to be very popular are, you know, that everyone wants to be a tech company, but you kind of have to work like a tech company to be one. And, and they are very flexible about what they work on. They don't work typically in large departments. They, they typically work in teams focused on a product, right? And you move product to product. So that's something that, you know, we're starting to see this sort of the seedlings in Ford, and I hope it, you know, kind of matures and, and takes on, but something to keep an eye out for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think companies like Ford are at an advantage because they they still have that rigor of their plant floor work and their manufacturing work. Plus, they get the, the good things from these tech companies of having, uh, as they say, the the team that is the size of like a pizza meal, uh, just two or three people working really fast in, in a very nimble manner. That's possible in some cases, whereas in manufacturing, you, you need like a lot of people to handle a very large line. So they have so much uh, goodness from each method to, to incorporate into the other and truly become like a tech enabled manufacturing company. So th I think it's on the right path and it just needs more people like you and like uh, all the other uh, folks who are, who are trying to make the best use of their rotation. So uh, great, great answer, Adam. Uh, there's, a, there's a good uh, conversation uh, for sure. So moving on, uh, we have, before we close a fun surprise question for you, which is, if this was 2051, what would the factory of 2051 look like? Or if you could go in time to 2051, what would manufacturing look like to you? That's a great question. Um, I think it will look uh, drastically different, no different than if you were in a time machine in 1950 and you came to uh, you know 2021 uh, what would it look like for their perspective? I, I don't see any difference uh, for us. Um, I think you will see one, um, obviously, um, the whatever the term we want to use this week, Internet of Things, uh, connected, <laughs> connectivity, uh, will be very prevalent, probably outdated. There'll probably be some better uh, way of networking, um, whether it's wireless or something like that. Um, but 
I think you'll see because the products we'll be making will be a lot more, you know, say environmentally friendly and, and conscious. There will be a lot more emphasis on that, I think, in the future. I, I think one other thing you'll see, I, I, I have no doubt that additive manufacturing will be very commonplace. I, I would be shocked if, for example, there weren't components of the vehicle being built that way in the future. What else? Um, like I said, I, I think there'll be management done by AI. I think a lot of like the sort of decision planning and everything will be will be handled by an AI. That being said, I don't see there being no people. Um, I, 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 th there's been a lot of advancement in the world and everyone seems to think that a robot's gonna take their job. I think even the best robot sometimes is never the best answer because there are, are a lot of jobs that are great because a human can be trained and be flexible where a robot cannot. And I don't see AI quite being there in 2051. So I think we're safe on that one. And that's and that's probably, you know, the, the biggest changes. I and I expect a very open floor plan, right? I don't I don't know if there'll be so many conventional lines and if there is a line, it, it'll be kind of pat the way that they'll be passed will be more open so that there's flexibility built in, right? So it's more of like a modular based uh, line construction. All good uh, concepts, Adam. I, I really like uh, all of the concepts, especially the open floor plan, because to me, it seems like with, with electrification, which 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 could become the, the majority of the vehicles in 2051, there are fewer components. Maybe we don't even need uh, several plans like, like one axle line and one transmission line and one engine plant and so and so it, it could all be very very compact uh, yet very open because the number of parts in that car are just they probably drop down by 10 times and that makes it a lot simpler and you'll have a lot more configurations for for all of the features that will come in the future at that time and even some of the things that a driver needs might be completely absent because they might be autonomous by that time so so it's great simplification is on the way and that would allow uh, like open uh, factories, fewer processes, and I guess more robots handling the hard, dirty, or even uh, dangerous stuff. And humans, like you said, doing things that are more creative and things that require rapid relearning. Um, so, yeah. Oh, exactly. I, I think, um, like you said, have, having the, you know, the, the, the human-based jobs, and, and having them be able to just kind of move around this sort of open floor is, is going to be really interesting. And, and I think that, like, you you know what's happening because, you know, in the time that, for example, when I first walked into the the, the floor in Livonia, uh, there were still these ugly gray machines in the middle of the floor because they had to move the, the four speed and out of the plant yet. And as we built on and built on, everything is cleaner and, and white and, and more white looking rather than gray. And that's because they like these sort of more open, you know, free spaces. And I and I think that's going to translate, continue to translate in manufacturing and, and become more developed and sort of in that way where it's 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 this fully flexible line so that if I want to change the uh, the product, I can. And one thing I'll also say is you, you mentioned that there are less components, which is 100 percent the case. But there's also probably 100 times more the complexity because of the wiring and the batteries. So. 
I, I think uh, with 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 that addition, that that's why you really do have to rethink, you know, sort of your process. You can't just uh, assume that the straight line production system is going to be the production system of the future. Great point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great point. There'll be a lot more choices and a lot more. It'll be pretty much like like a shoe or a T-shirt, you know, well, not that much, but a lot more commoditized and simple and uh, than it is right now. Um, so just plug something in, take something out like like Legos. Um, so absolutely right. Well, Adam, thank you for, for all these answers. They were very good. They were very informative for me. I learned something about test engineering. I learned a lot about how you are uh, using data to, to help the F-150 Lightning become better and you know, the other electri electrified vehicles. And uh, your technical challenge and your non-technical challenge were were also very interesting to hear about and your ideas for the magic wand were were pretty great too so all in all i i really enjoyed this and i really uh, enjoyed talking to you again you know we Same. uh we uh we used to banter a lot adam and i about stuff and adam you know he loves buying vehicles so he used to start this uh, monologue <laughs> about you know which car is better it's a are you sure you want this podcast to be about this because we can just talk about that so if you want to oh. just talk about that we can we can make a we can make a car uh not even a, it's not even a gearhead podcast it's just like a it's like a it's like a stock podcast but only talking about buying and selling of cars like it just you know it's just we're gonna hold on to this this uh you know fancy corvette and we're gonna sell this uh, electric car or whatever uh, <laughs> you know, we, we can get there and, and and it still translates here and and our on our contentions are still very much on the table because you'll note that i refer to it as the maquis -E, and you constantly insist on calling it the mustang maquis -E. yes <laughs> yes and and well yeah that's that's a little you know thanks for bringing that up that that was actually a, a kind of a bone of contention like i was pretty worked up because i felt like a ford lending the mustang name to this new vehicle was the right thing to do and and adam was like oh no i don't know that this is a separate thing it's it's not a mustang it's it's something else and they have a million names to choose from and it's an suv it's not even like a sports car why are you calling it the mustang waki and i just thought it was the best thing that that ever happened to the mustang so i, I don't think we still agree on it but uh but you know we'll, we'll probably leave it at that <laughs> recycling the f-150 lightning name though now that was lightning in a bottle <laughs> Yeah, that that was in, a insert lot insert drum roll. I will insert a drum roll there. <laughs> I, I've never done that on the podcast, but you know what? Yeah, you're you the first like person who <laughs> who suggested first person it. First so. to tell a dad joke. Yeah. Uh, have you, has your dad joke uh, repertoire increased now that you know you've, you've had all? You're you're almost a year or so now, right? My daughter is one and a half. In fact, she's almost two. Yeah. She's uh, she's going to be two in August. So. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It's crazy. Uh, I was I was sharing, uh, you know, uh, information about uh, my uh, parental leave, uh, you know, not long ago, and now, and now she's two years old. So that's how fly, you know fast uh, time moves. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Adam. All the best with with your work in the Advanced Connected Vehicles Group. Uh, it sounds like an exciting place right now, the way Ford is going about with its products. It has a great new 
great new lineup and things are things are looking absolutely great uh, the way it's going so yeah good job on the intelligent range the whole team and uh, you keep doing what you're doing appreciate it Sid keep going with the podcast it's really interesting and uh, it's, it's cool to see you kind of getting to do all this different stuff that that, that is really interesting and, and kind of hopefully is, is, is building sort of a portfolio for you guys and of interest all right if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to The Means of Production podcast for more stories from people behind all the manufactured goods we use, love, and depend on. This episode was made possible by Pashi, the operating system for manufacturing. Pashi unifies the entire production process for any product, encompassing operator instruction and data interpret interfaces, stage logic and parameter thresholding, machine interfacing and configuration, robot programming and coordination and stage-to-stage production flow control into a single Pashi program. Check us out at Pashi.com. And until we meet again, have a fantastic day and take care.